So, 54 years ago this month, a truly awful movie was released called The Night of the Living Dead. And in this movie, a space probe explodes in the atmosphere above New England. And as the radioactive material trickles down and touches the earth, it reanimates human corpses, which then go raging throughout the east coast of America. These creatures are called the living dead because their bodies are in motion, but they're not really alive. Now today we're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6, and this passage contains Christ's letter to the church of Sardis. And according to this letter, local churches can fall into that same dreaded state. They can reach a point where they are full of activities, okay, a lot of motion, but there is no spiritual life within them. They can become churches of the living dead. The Church of Sardis is a case study of this phenomenon. So we're going to explore our passage today. We're going to try to understand how a church can get into that state and then what it can do to get out of it again. Okay, so that's where we're headed this morning. I trust you found your way to the text. I'll begin in a word of prayer and then we will explore it together. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for a beautiful morning in which to gather and worship Thank you so much for each individual who is here today. I pray your every blessing on each one of them. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding into today's text. We we want to understand how a church can descend into this state of, of living death. We want to know how to stay out of that state, how to fight for life. So, Lord, give us understanding, give us receptivity to the message of this text, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so turning now to chapter 3, verse 1, it begins this way. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write this, quote, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we've encountered these images before. We saw them back in chapter 1. So you'll recall that the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars are the seven angels or messengers of Christ's churches. This image here of Christ as the one holding the seven spirits and the seven stars is meant to communicate to us that Christ is the Lord of life. He is the Lord of life. So let's start with the Holy Spirit. The scriptures call him the spirit of life. So in Genesis chapter 1, the very start of our Bibles, we find the Holy Spirit of God hovering over the earth's primordial waters. He's preparing to bring life into the lifeless world. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we find the Holy Spirit breathing into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. And that's how Adam becomes a living soul. We're also told that the Holy Spirit imparts spiritual life. It's called the gift of regeneration. And so we read in Titus 3, verse 5, that God saved us not because of works done by us, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And Christ holds this Holy Spirit in his hands, and together with his Father, he sends the Spirit out into the world to bring life. And then those seven stars in Christ's other hands, these are the angels or the messengers of the churches. And what is their message? Well, it is the life-giving gospel of Christ. And Christ sends these messengers out into the world to call people to a living faith. So Christ is the Lord of life. He has the spirit of life. He has the words of life. And he sends them out into the world to impart life to people. Friends, being the Lord of life, Christ knows when he is looking at a dead church. He knows when he is looking at a dead church. And friends, that is exactly what he saw when he looked at the church of Sardis. Now, if you're not familiar with Sardis, this was a prominent city in western Turkey. It was the capital of the province of Lydia. And the church of Sardis was right in the midst of it. There's a lot of debate about who founded the church of Sardis. Some say it was the Apostle John. Some say the Apostle Paul. Still others say one of the disciples of Paul. But regardless, everyone has agreed that the church was started by a true gospel minister. Which means that this church was once a spiritually vital church. It had the words of life. It had the spirit of life. The members of this church were born again by God's spirit. It was a very vital place. Tragically, this was not the case anymore. So look what our Lord says about this church, second part of verse 1. He says to the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In other words, to people on the outside, this looked like a vital congregation. There were people still gathering every Sunday morning for worship. They were still observing the ordinances on a regular basis. This church probably had a full slate of church activities, too. They had things for adults and for kids, activities for men and for women. Maybe they even had community outreach initiatives going on. Very, very active church. A lot of motion happening in this congregation. And yet, if you were to look on the inside of the congregation, where it really matters, Christ says this congregation was spiritually dead. That means... The Word of God was gone. The Spirit of God was gone. No life left in this church. How did this happen? Well, probably not all at once. Rather, it was probably just a slow, steady spiritual decline until they finally reached the point where the Word and the Spirit were entirely absent from their midst. So not all at once, but through a process. It's interesting to me that this letter mentions nothing about persecution. There's nothing here about doctrinal controversies in the church. 
In fact, this church is struggling with none of the things that all the other six churches of Revelation had to deal with. And I think this gives us a clue as to how the spiritual downgrade happened in the church of Sardis. I suspect that in an effort to avoid the pain of persecution, this church probably slowly but surely started jettisoning every doctrinal and moral commitment that would have put them at odds with the culture around them until they finally reached the point where they were indistinguishable from the culture. Nobody likes persecution. Nobody wants to be mistreated for the convictions that they hold. But for this church, apparently, it was a really acute struggle. And so, just little by little, to avoid the bold contrast between them and the people outside of the church, they began making accommodations, surrendering doctrines of the gospel one by one until there was no difference between their convictions and the convictions of the other residents of Sardis. So there was no persecution in this church. And then as far as biblical doctrine is concerned, I imagine this church was as adverse to controversy as it was to persecution. And so when a, a false doctrine would creep up in the church, instead of confronting it head on, these people said, oh, that would be uncomfortable. Let's just leave it alone. Maybe it'll go away on its own. But it didn't go away. The false doctrines grew and grew until they swallowed up the entire congregation. So this church had no persecution because there was nothing to be persecuted for. They had no doctrinal controversies because there were no doctrines left to be in conflict about. See, this is how it happened. And as we look a little deeper into our text, I think this is confirmed for us. If you look, for example, at verse 3. Christ says to the church, remember then what you received and heard. What did they receive and and hear in in the start? It was the gospel, the doctrines of the gospel. Why is he telling them to remember it? Well, because they had long since forgotten it. See, once they had the gospel, now they don't have the gospel. They had sound doctrine, now they have no doctrine at all. So he calls them to remember it. And then if you look down at verse 4, it says... You still have a few names in Sardis, people who've not soiled their garments. Implication being that the great majority of the church had indeed soiled its garments, which is just a really graphic way of describing their embrace of their culture's immorality. So they had forgotten the doctrines of the gospel. They had... They had rejected the holiness that the gospel produces in a life. And friends, whenever you find a church that has abandoned biblical doctrine and forsaken biblical ethics, you can be sure that you have found a church of the living dead. It may still call itself a church, may still have a whole lot of activities going on, but it is no church of Christ. The words of life have departed that church. The Spirit of God has left that church. It is a church of the living dead. Friends, what is a dead church supposed to do? Well, Christ tells the church of Sardis what to do in verses 2 and 3. So let's look at these verses. Our Lord gives the church five instructions. First is found in verse 2. He writes, Wake up! Okay, Wake up! That means, Church... (laughs) 
It's time to recognize the spiritual state that you are in. Look, this has been a slow but steady spiritual downgrade, maybe even imperceptible to you. You don't realize how bad off you are, so it's time for you to wake up, realize how far you have fallen from your original state. You don't have the words of God. You don't have the spirit of God. You're nothing but a group of people doing some religious activities. Awaken to this reality. Then his second instruction found in the second part of verse 2, he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, friends, this suggests that there was still a little tiny spark of life in this church. There were just a, a few scattered people in this congregation who were truly born again. These are people who would have left for another church long ago if there was another church to be at. But remember, this is the first century. It's the church of Sardis or nothing. So just a a sprinkling of people who are there, they're truly born again. They still hold the gospel. They're still committed to biblical ethics. Christ says, you find them, you start with them, and you will build out your church from them. They will become the new foundation. Or to use a different analogy, the the church's fire was out, but there were still just a few little burning embers. And Christ is saying to this church, go find those little embers and then fan them back into flame. Start with the little bit you've got and from there you can grow. So wake up. See the spiritual condition you're in and then strengthen what remains. Find the little bit of of core life that is still there and bring it back into full bloom. Then his third instruction found at the beginning of verse 3, he says, And remember then what you received and heard. He's saying to them, think back to the birth of your church. What was the message that brought your church into being? What was the doctrine? What were the practices that sustained your church before that downgrade took hold? Get back to that. Be like that church again. This is a call to reclaim the centrality of the gospel message in the church. It was the gospel that formed this church, the words of God combined with the spirit of God to bring new life to the people of God. And that's how the church formed They weathered many storms hanging on to that gospel. They had long since forgotten it. He says, put the gospel in the center again. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Put the gospel back in the center of your church. And then number four, he says, this is also verse three. He says, and keep it, keep it. The word translated keep here means to hold something tight. So make the gospel central again and then work hard to see that it stays there, that it doesn't get shifted from its center again. This is an instruction to preach and teach the unadulterated gospel and to do so without apology. See, this is where the church had gone wrong before. They preached the gospel They made some enemies. They said, oh, this is scary. They backed off of the gospel until they finally lost it altogether. Christ says, no, you get the gospel front and center of your church again, 
And you hold tight to it this time. When you preach, you preach the biblical gospel. Those are the words of life. No, friends, Jesus told us to love our enemies. He didn't tell us to make no enemies or to have no enemies. When you preach the gospel in all of its purity, there will be some who are offended by it. They just will be. They won't like you for speaking the words of the gospel because it confronts people in their sins, because it calls for repentance, because it tells them there's nothing they can do on their own to make themselves right with God. They've just got to receive what God has done for them through Christ. These things are offensive to many people. The ethical demands of the gospel upon a person are offensive to some. Preach the gospel faithfully. You will have enemies, but that's okay. The command isn't have no enemies. The command is love your enemies. Preach and teach the gospel and demand adherence to the gospel as a condition of church membership. See, this is where churches go astray. They no longer guard the front door of their church. No, he is telling them, You keep the gospel center, you hold it there. Those who would enter the door of your church and become members, they must show that they love Christ, that they're committed to the gospel of Christ. And this would also mean have a discipline process for those who reject the gospel and its demands on life. Have a back door that sometimes you will have to make use of for the sake of the purity of the gospel and of the testimony of the church. Fear Christ more than you fear men. That's what Christ is saying in this passage. So friends, it comes down to this. Do you want your church to live? Do you want your church to live or do you want your church to die? If you want it to live, you must wake up to the reality of things. You must strengthen what remains If the church has lost its core, you must put the gospel front and center again. You must preach it. You must teach it. You must defend it. You must insist upon it within your congregation. You must fear Christ more than you fear men. If you want your church to live, these are the things that you must do. And then instruction number five, found at the end of verse three, he says, and repent. Remember it, keep it, and repent. This is a call to be brokenhearted over the damage they had done to their church, along with a resolution to return to faithfulness. See what you have done. Be sorrowful over what you have done to your church. Be sorrowful that you've not honored Christ by clinging to his gospel. That you feared man more than you have feared him. Forsake that way of living. Embrace this way, this new way. My friends, these are our Lord's words for the dead church. And he provides a powerful incentive for heeding these words. Look at the very end of verse 3. He says, remember it, keep it, repent. Then he says, For if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Here our Lord is echoing the words of 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 4 of that book, 
The scriptures tell us about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he is going to come personally and visibly and gloriously. And when he comes, he is going to rescue his church. He'll start with the dead in Christ. He will rise them from their graves, give them new glorified bodies. And then he'll turn to the living in Christ at his coming. And he will give them new bodies without them having to experience death. And then he will take them together, the living in Christ, the dead in Christ, unite them as one assembly, and they will be with him forever and ever. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then the next chapter, chapter 5, is a warning to those who have not received Christ. And it warns them of great tribulation to follow. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, quote, Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So here's Christ's warning to the church of Sardis. He says, look, I am coming again. And for some people, it'll be the best day of their whole lives. For others, it'll be the worst day of their whole lives. For some, I'll be coming as a rescuer. For others, I'll be coming like a thief. My coming will be a surprise. It'll be unwelcome, and it's going to be terrible. And he says, what you do with me will determine whether it's your best day or your worst day. And he says to the church of, of Sardis here, If you don't awaken to your problem and you get all the way to my return in the state you're in now, he says, for you, it's going to be like that thief. I'll not come as your rescuer. I'll come as your judge. It'll be the worst day of your life. Friends, what an incentive to awaken to our spiritual need to embrace Christ in faith and repentance. What an incentive for every true gospel church to guard the gospel that's been entrusted to them, lest they suffer the same warning or even the same fate. But now, thankfully, Christ does not end his letter on a negative note. He ends it on a happy note. He always does this. And so let's look at the happy ending Verse 4, he makes promises to those who do endure in faithfulness. Verse 4 says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who've not soiled their garments. Now here's the promise to them. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So this was a dead church except for just a few scattered members who were still faithful Christians. Christ says to those faithful Christians, they are mine, and I will dress them in white, and they will be with me forever. This is a promise of of, um, experiencing, that they will experience the end goal of their salvation. Namely, full redemption and glorified bodies, free from all sin. The, the being draped in white robes, this is symbolic of uh, becoming holy in your experience as well as in your positional state before God. 
He's promising the end goal of their redemption. And then he gives another promise, verse 5. He says, And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, in ancient cities, a citizen's name was kept in a, in a public register. And then after the person died, their name was removed for the reg- from the register. Well, here Christ is promising... For those who are his, their name shall be written in the book and never blotted out. This is a promise of eternal security. So he says, for the individual who is faithful, for the church that revives and becomes a strong gospel force again, to all such people, they shall be draped in white. They shall experience the fullness of their redemption, total holiness And then he says, and they shall be eternally secure. Their names recorded in my register and never, ever will they be removed. And now there's still another promise. End of verse 5. He says, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And this reaffirms what Christ said in Matthew chapter 10, quote, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. This is a promise of proud identification. To those of you who who proudly, unashamedly said, I belong to Christ, and who faithfully preach the words of Christ, those are the people that Christ will look to and say, they are mine. You declare allegiance to Christ, He declares His allegiance to you. Promises of redemption, of eternal security, of eternal identification with Christ. Promises of His everlasting approval. And friends, this is all that we need. We don't need the culture's approval. We just need Christ's approval. That's the only one. We need the approval of the Lord of life and the ruler of the coming kingdom of God. And so we turn to verse 6, which is our application. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So friend, did you hear what the Spirit said to you today? Will you heed His words? Will you fight for the centrality of the gospel in your church? Will you fight to maintain this church as a church of the living, and never let it become a church of the living dead. Now, I take no joy in saying that the American landscape today is littered, littered with big, beautiful, historic church buildings that are filled with congregations of the living dead. All kinds of activities taking place in these churches, but there is no spiritual life. The Word of God is not taught anymore. It used to be the people that built those beautiful structures preached the gospel, but it's long since departed. And with the Word's departure, the Spirit of God has departed as well. He is no longer converting souls. He is no longer giving God's people a a longing for holiness. He's not working in lives. He's not building families there. The Spirit of God is gone. Churches of the living dead. May God never allow that to happen to this church. Might we take our responsibility seriously to guard the gospel of Christ 
that we will always be a church of the living. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us. We thank you for Christ's letter to the church of Sardis. Lord, what a tragic letter. But Lord, the words of hope at the end are what we cling to. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful, that you would help us to have courage, that we could face adversity, that we could take on doctrinal controversy, that we would declare the unadulterated gospel of your Son, that we would love our enemies and not fool ourselves into thinking we can live in a world where we have no enemies. Pray, Lord, that if there's any here today who has not yet come to your Son with saving faith, that they might do that today. Repenting of sin, forsaking it all, turning to you as Lord and God and as Savior. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Andy and tract distribution here at the church. If you're interested in participating in that ministry, please see Eric Long um, as he coordinates that event and be praying for that event as we hand out, in addition to candy, um, some literature for our church. Also, um, tomorrow night is Awana from 6 to 8 p.m. Again, that's at Southside Bible Church in Battle Creek. Also remember our Biblical Foundations for Living class on Wednesdays from 6.30 to 7.30, and that is for um, those that would like to come here physically in the building or for those that would like to join online as well. And finally, uh, please remember that we have our 20th anniversary coming up soon on November 20th, so please keep that on your radar and plan to be here that Sunday. We'll close this morning with 2 Peter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You're dismissed.